Welcome to Maeve in America. Hello, hello, I'm Maeve. What's up? I'm America. No, that was just me, Maeve, doing a voice. But isn't it funny that whenever someone does an American voice, it's like a shouty bro? This podcast is all about the American immigrant experience, where I find out what happens when you leave your life behind, move far away and start a new one. This is our fourth episode and I'm so glad to hear from so many of you already. Thanks for your awesome encouragement and kind words on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. It means a lot because these are immigration stories told by the people who've lived them. Before we get to my guest today, I'm going to introduce my special little statistician friend, Mona Chalaby. Data editor for The Guardian US, Mona joins us each week to look at the big picture. And today she's talking about speech and language. Data, please. Data, please. So English is actually the most widely spoken language. It's spoken in 101 countries around the world, followed by Arabic, which is spoken in 60 countries. And actually, it's, it's not just the fact that English is spoken in so many countries. It's also the fact that it's the official language of loads and loads of countries. And actually, not, the United States isn't on this list. But there are so many places on this list. I'm just going to read them because it might be quite funny, even if you like speed up my voice while I'm reading them. Belize, Botswana. Go, 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 go. <laughs> Belize, Botswana, Canada, Cameroon, Eritrea, Fiji, Ghana, Guyana, India, Ireland, Jamaica, Kenya, Liberia, Lesotho. Oh, this is really hard. Malawi, Namibia, Nigeria, New Zealand, Pakistan, Philippines, Papua New Guinea, Puerto Rico, Rwanda, Sudan, South Sudan, Solomon Islands, Sierra Leone, Swaziland, Trinidad and Tobago, Tanzania, Uganda, Vanuatu. 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 South Africa, Zambia and Zimbabwe. The United Kingdom's not on there either. That's interesting, isn't it? But you know what's so kind of grim is that it's just like a roll call of the colonies. I know. I know. I'm glad that I speak English. Like mm. it's given me a lot more opportunities. <laughs> it is sad like to think how it came about where like mm. Irish was banned and you had to learn English. How do you feel when you hear Gaelic? Oh, just like confused and guilty. Oh. Yeah, I know. That's exactly how I feel about Arabic. It is? Yeah. Anyway, back to the reasons why English is so widely spoken, as you mentioned, good old colonialism. Uh, I didn't put it that way, but... <laughs> no, and I wish I hadn't either, because people don't really understand sarcasm. Um, uh, it's also really, really widely studied. So there are 1.5 billion people in the world learning English, followed by French, which is 82 million people learning it. So can you speak to like how many immigrants arrive here uh, speaking some English or what's the level? I mean, it's really interesting how you even define this, right? Like what constitutes speaking English well? And the Census Bureau actually allows people to define that for themselves. So they issue a questionnaire and they ask people who speak a language other than English about their English language skills. It'd be funny if they were like, do you speak English good, good, gooder? (laughs) I mean, no one even says well, really, do they? So that's already part of the test, I guess. Do you say well ever? I say sometimes like, you did well. Really? That sounds very patronising. Um, <laughs> so they ask, do, does the person speak English very well, well, not well, or not at all? Mm. And anyone who answers anything other than very well is considered limited English proficient. It kind of also really, really prejudices I guess the more humble among the immigrants yeah it does and you know a lot of us day to day don't speak English like very well and you can be a totally contributing member of society without having you know perfect English Mm. anyway that is the definition that's used and of new immigrants arriving to the US Mm -hmm. about half report high English speaking abilities Mm -hmm. which is quite interesting of the 40.6 million 
foreign-born Americans who are age five and over. They ignore the ones that are under the age oh. of five because they're just like, well, you they can't really speak anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the last thing I wanted to look at, I guess, was dig a little bit further into this idea of limited English proficient. So mm -hmm. there are about 25 million people in the US who are limited English proficient, which is 8% of the total population. What's interesting, though, is I think people assume that those limited English proficient people are all immigrants, but actually one in five who are limited English proficient are native born. And most of them are just born to immigrant parents, you know, raised speaking a second language. I look around journalism mm -hmm. and I look at other writers and I think there aren't that many people whose parents speak a foreign language. And I remember at school, my English teacher kept on being like, oh, doesn't, don't you speak English really, really well? Your and I don't know if that's yeah, that and I don't know if that's really, really, really patronising and offensive, or actually an indication that before I went to school, my parents were speaking their second language and their English isn't fantastic, and maybe I am pretty fucking impressive. <laughs> I, I got the highest score for my English A level in the entire country. You did. That was literally the apex of my entire life of success. It's all been downhill from there. Oh but God. I remember the teacher was you got just like one hundred percent in your A level. I really wanted to put it on my Tinder profile. <laughs> I think you have a really messed up idea. First of all, English proficiency and also being on a podcast. Those are not like... They are. They're sexy. sexy. <laughs> Mona, thank you so much. That's okay. You're a good girl. <laughs> mm, it's very creepy. That was Mona Chalabi, and doesn't she speak English very well? <laughs> you can find Mona on Instagram and Twitter at Mona Chalabi. The first thing we're going to do is our ogre bodies are bigger than our normal sized bodies. So we're going to put our arm, bring our arms out like this, and our arms are going to act as the ogre rib cage. That so is today's nice guest, teaching an acting class at UC Santa Cruz. She stands at exactly five foot tall, but believe me, she seems so much taller. She's got one side of her head shaved, and you know how that either works or it doesn't work? On her, it totally works. My name is Amy Meehan Ginther. I teach acting and I teach voice, and I work in accents and dialects as well. And I'm, I'm interested in how the work that we do as actor trainers can empower students. I met Amy when I was a baby comedian back in 2006 at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. We were performing at the same venue. I was telling jokes like, what if animals could drive? Wouldn't the traffic be so bad? And she was telling truths in this funny but piercing way she has. She still performs from time to time when she's got something to say. So last summer I was in Brooklyn in a bar sipping a very fancy $12 cocktail with ginger or some shit in it. And this young woman came up to me and we started to chat. She was pretty, white, uh, first year law student, perfectly millennial. And, you know, I introduced myself and she said, your English is really good. <laughs> <laughs> She complimented you on your English? Yes, she thought it was great. We had mutual friends and we were being introduced or something. And, you know, to be fair, she maybe had like a few drinks. She wasn't smashed, but she was loose and ready. Oh, and, and what did she say? Uh, she said, your English is really good. And why wouldn't Amy's English be good? 
She's an American girl. I was born in South Korea in the province of Gyeongsangbuk-do, and I arrived to the U.S. when I was three months old. So this show is about immigration, right? Do you think of yourself as an immigrant? Yeah, a lot of people don't think of adoptees as immigrants because our families are not usually immigrants themselves. And uh, we did not come of our own accord. And so it, we are a type of immigrant, but a very unique one at that. Amy has thought a lot about her experience and what it means to come from another country as a baby and join an American family. We come with an interesting level of privilege because our adoptive families had to qualify to be eligible to adopt. And that usually mm. means they need to have a very stable lifestyle, some level of income and resources. But at the same time, we experience interesting levels of assimilation, racism, and, and other experiences that, that other uh, immigrants would have. Did you, do you know how you got here? In terms of my story with my... Physically? Physically. Like, I mean... <laughs> yes. I was not in baggage check. Uh, <laughs> so the way most of us get here is that we either, our adoptive family goes to the country and they pick the baby up, or in my case, there was a guardian that worked with the adoption agencies. And so I went and took the journey myself with such a guardian, and my parents were waiting at the Albany airport. People think all sorts of things when they're seated next to a baby on an airplane. Some people think, I need to move, whatever the cost. I think, I wonder how long I should wait before I ask to hold it. I doubt anybody is thinking, there goes an infant off to begin their new life. But that's just what baby Amy was doing. When you're little, you think of not much beyond your own home or your neighborhood even. You know, there's maybe school or your grandma and grandpa's house and how that begins to expand through travel or vacations. But my whole life, I knew that the world was much bigger because the story of my adoption, my origin and the country of origin always was part of the picture. And I was on a plane at a very young age <laughs> So that was that was always something I had some idea of. Do you even remember hearing the first time that you were adopted? We were part of a Korean American family kid group. And so mm -hmm. all the parents were adoptive parents and all the kids were Korean adoptees. And it was just a known explicit part of my life from when I can remember. Yeah. Almost everybody in Amy's world was white. Upstate New York sounds like Ireland in the 80s, or Connecticut today. Yeah, there was absolutely an impact of being a person of color and an Asian kid in a predominantly white school, a predominantly white neighborhood. Uh, unfortunately, I think we had one Jewish kid in our in our class. And oh, that is unfortunate. <laughs> no, that part was not unfortunate. The unfortunate was only one. Uh, poor poor um, Daniel Hartstein, who... Oh. Got all the questions when we sang the one Hanukkah song oh for Christmas time. Uh, but the really unfortunate part was my memory of the, the Korean adoptees in the school, mm -hmm. which there were, I mean, there were at least four or five in my graduating class alone. And there was a lot of bullying. There was a lot of name calling and like made up like Asian languages or a lot of, you know, are you from China or you're from Japan? Yeah, it's not like if the mocking had been more specific, it would have made it better. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? Well, a lot of the derogatory things were inaccurate. And probably the one that stands out the most would be in fourth grade, 
uh, a student named Carl called me the N-word. Yes, so that happened. And it was very confusing, but oh also incredibly hurtful because I understood the intent behind it. Oh, Carl, you little idiot. Okay, one of my favorite comedians is coming up right now. He is about to blow up. I mean, he already kind of is. He was on Conan and everyone's going crazy for him. I want to say I noticed him years ago. Um, so please put your hands together and welcome to the stage the incredibly funny Joel Kim Booster. I am from the Midwest. I grew up there. It's why I have this very funny name. You guys might have noticed up top, Joel Kim Booster. It's very strange. Does not match my face at all, you know? Um, Joel up top, that seems pretty Jewish. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, Kim in the middle, that seems closer. Uh, we're getting someone. And then Booster right there at the end, well, that's just a word, you know? Uh, that's not a name at all. <laughs> what is going on there? And the reason, of course, that I have this very strange name is, yes, I was adopted by a nice white Midwestern couple, white working class couple. Um, and they were, they were great. Um, you know, Korea in the mid-80s, it was sort of like the Grubhub of babies uh, back then, you know, because it was the only country where you did not have to fly to the country to get the baby. They would deliver it to your door. I was delivered by a very grumpy man on a bike. Joel Kim Booster deals with his adoption narrative by making jokes about it. I asked Amy if she felt politicized from a young age. Was she always aware of race? Yes, I do. I do feel like I was more aware of race at a younger age. Um, my grandmother, I have a memory of her introducing me and my brother as her Korean adopted grandchildren to one of her neighbors. You know, so I didn't really have a choice to ignore it or not hmm. be aware of it. My grandmother never introduced me as like my white biological, this is right. my white biological right. granddaughter. Did she ever introduce you as her Korean adopted granddaughter? <laughs> she didn't. Okay. The thing about interracial adoptees is that we all want, like anyone else in our family, we want a sense of unconditional love. And what happens when our parents or our extended family are a race other than our own, through different implicit things, different microaggressions, uh, resistance even to talking about it, mm. sensitivity, we're actually encoded to think if we want acceptance from them, mm -hmm. then we have to act a certain way or not speak or ask questions. My family all look really alike. My parents could be brother and sister. In fact, they are brother and sister. They are twins. They are Siamese twins. No, they're not. They're very, very distant cousins. No, they're not. But this, okay, this is true. I'm one of eight children and we're like variations on a theme. I tried to imagine what it was like for Amy growing up in this family that wasn't even the same race as her. And then I thought, wait a second, I need to call my sister. Hello? Hi, Mammy. Hello? Hi, can you hear me? No. Okay, two things. If my mother couldn't hear me, how come she could hear me asking if she could hear me? The other thing, yes, I call my mother Mammy. Anyway, Aggie is 18. She's in her final year of high school. Hi, Wave. Hi, Aggie. How are you? When Aggie was four, shortly after she moved to Ireland from Jamaica, my parents fostered her. Now, if you've been in care or if you foster, you'll know that fostering can be short term or long term, depending. 
we were really lucky with Aggie because it turned out she could stay for good. So do you remember when you were like, oh, I'm a different colour than my family? Yes, but I didn't realise it until I hit a certain age when I went into school. Like, you trying to do all my hair, like, it was so hard and, like, trying to get all perfect and everything. I really wanted beautiful long hair and then I realised that I was so, so completely different. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like, I remember Mammy trying to straighten it one time and I was like, it's not straight enough. And she's like, Aggie, I can't do anything else. And I was like, well, it's not straight enough. <laughs> <laughs> I just realised that I'd I'd have to be able to do it myself and like figure out all the different ways myself and like that there there was nobody there that was black to help me. That's when I realised. I think it was when I was like nine. Most of my family really like makeup and sharing it slash stealing it from each other is almost a ritual in our home. And that was something that Aggie missed out on. It was like impossible. Like, I could never borrow anything. It was like a no-no. <laughs> like, it was so unfair. All of you running around at Christmas and borrowing each other's stuff while I'd have to specially pick out pigmented, like, eyeliners and, like, everything so it could show up on my skin. And I was just so jealous. If you think hair and makeup are trivial, you are dead wrong. There were other things, too, that caused Aggie to feel left out. I asked her if there was anything that we could have done differently. Like, I don't, like, I don't think you could have, because I don't know, like, what you were going to get. You might have expected something else, but you got me, <laughs> you know? So, like, I think it's unfair to, like, rule out that, oh, we could have done something, we could have changed it. You grow and we learn, you know? But, like, say if you adopted or fostered a child that was a different race to you, what what do you think you might do differently? Like, if I did have another black child and that was adopted, I don't think they'd be so left out because I've been through the experience of it and, like, my family has been through the experience of it. Adopt a different colour child or a different race of child is great because you don't really need to explain the whole adoption and the fostering because... You can just take them to your home and be like, look, I'm so different and you are too and that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) If that makes sense. (laughs) I think it must have been hard for you being the only, you know, being the first one of anything is is hard. And you were the first black person in our family. I like, I... I would look at myself and be like, why don't I look like you? <laughs> really? I'd, I'd look at myself like, I wish I was born white sometimes. So people would be like, that is my sister. But then like, it doesn't really matter when you get older. You just start realizing it, you know. You're like, ah, they love me. They have to keep me now. Grand. Okay, girl, I better go here. Will you tell everyone I send my love? Sorry, I say there is just more laughter than anything else. I didn't get anything done today, but you can hear me and my sister giggling. <laughs> that was Aggie in Ireland, and this is Maeve in America. After the break, we'll get back to Amy and find out what happened when she got back to Korea. 
to Maven in America and thank you so much for listening to Fetty Wap's official favourite podcast. I want to get straight back into it. Amy does a lot of work for adoptee rights and talking to her about the sheer number of children adopted just from Korea was sort of amazing to me. What year did you... Were you adopted? I was adopted in 1983. Mm -hmm. And in that year, there were over 7,000 Korean adoptees who were sent abroad to a number of different countries. So that is almost one every hour, hour and a half in that year. Oh my God. Yeah. And it really started to drop off towards the late 80s, but there were still a lot in the 90s. There's a total of over 160,000 Korean adoptees since the early 1950s. When you put it that way, that's incredible. Yeah, it's, there's it? a lot of us. A man from South Korea adopted in the U.S. at the age of three is sent back to a country and a family he has never known. 41-year-old Adam Krapser was deported to South Korea on November 17th. Krapser was first adopted... This sounds impossible, but it happened, and not just Adam Krapser. To find out how, I called up our context queen for today, Maureen McCauley Evans, who wrote about Adam's case for Slate magazine. A lot of people think that international adoptees automatically get citizenship, but that was not true until 2001. So anybody adopted prior to 2001, their adoptive parents had to naturalize them. There are some 35,000 international adoptees who do not have U.S. citizenship. Some of them may know it, some of them may not know that they don't have citizenship. And in 1996, a very strong immigration law was passed that included several deportable offenses, various crimes, for which non-U.S. citizens could be deported. So Adam Krapser, could you speak to his experience as a child here? He was three years old and arrived in the United States with an older sister from Korea and was placed with a family that was abusive and kept him and his sister and then split the children up, sent them to other to foster homes. He was adopted by Thomas and Dolly Krapser of Oregon, who abused him and the other children in their care. Adam ultimately was thrown out when he was about 16. He returned to the house at one point to retrieve belongings that he had brought with him from Korea. And because he was breaking into the house, he was arrested for burglary. Adam ended up spending 25 months in jail for that burglary and went on to have a number of other uh, arrests along the way and, and convictions. Adam Krapser committed crimes and served his time, but because of a combination of terrible adoptive parents and punitive immigration laws, he was deported. The other part that I think is really important here, Maeve, is that children who are brought here for purposes of international adoption are brought here to become part of American families as genuine mm -hmm. legal family members, as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. That's where I think for many people the, the crux of the issue is the idea that these children were brought here for purposes of adoption to become Americans and now our American government is sending them back. Mm -hmm. It's a real repudiation of what international adoption should be. So Adam Krapser was separated from his wife and children and sent to a country he's never known with a language he doesn't speak and it's not clear yet what he will do there. 
the the good news, if we can call it the, this at all, is that there is a fairly strong community of Korean adoptees living in Korea now uh, from the United States who may be able to help and support him in one way, and that's, I think, probably the, the small ray of sunshine that we can find in this. Amy's experience could not be more different. She was one of those adoptees who chose to return, at first for a visit 12 years ago. The first time I went back to Korea as an adult, I was 21 years old, and I was going to meet my birth family for the first time. (laughs) I went with my dad from the U.S., who was awesome enough to come with me and be there with me for that experience. I think I was really excited to go, but... When I arrived, at that point, we still hadn't, we didn't know if they had found my Korean mother or not. The agency had found Amy's mother and given her a letter Amy wrote to her. Do you remember what the letter said? I talked a little bit about who I was and what I was doing in school and that I wanted to meet her because I wanted to thank her for her sacrifice and to let her know that I was okay and, and that part is actually the most important because she wrote me a letter back and she thought that I, you know, hated her. She thought that I was coming to to yell at her and berate her and, and that's how she had treated herself all those years. And so she really, she couldn't believe that I was coming on loving terms. She wow. thought she was going to have to just sit and beg for my forgiveness uh, for, for hours on end. Amy's mother had kept her a secret because of shame and fear. To give up a child is incredibly traumatic. And when you're from a society that believes it's best to never speak about it. And, you know, my Korean mother basically kept it a secret my whole life and didn't even tell my siblings. So the mothers who don't want to meet their children, it's often not because they really don't. Mm. It's because it's painful and traumatizing. But Amy's mother decided she was ready. And after 21 years, they were reunited. I heard her before I saw her because I could hear her coming down the hallway and just wailing and and just very emotional. And she she wore a lot more makeup than I imagined. Her, Her clothing style is like she likes wearing a lot of glittery, sparkly kind of patterns. And uh, and she had like this really dyed hair that was permed and so it was nothing of what I expected and uh and yeah yeah she's she's quite quite the lady I really loved hearing Amy's surprise at her mother's fashion sense because Amy is super stylish. She was sitting in front of me in a pair of Lisa Frank leggings with rainbow tigers on them, talking about how her mom likes glittery clothes. She came up from Gimcheon, where she is from, which is maybe like a two, three hour train ride from Seoul. And we had to meet in the agency's office with a representative present. But my family friend was the translator. And that was great because she was able to share things with my Korean mother about me growing up. It never occurred to me that you would need a translator to talk, course, to, your, yeah. to, talk to your mother. <laughs> you do. You do. And of course, there's, there was a lot of crying and hugging and things that you can pick up on that are not translatable. 
But uh, yeah, it, you do need someone in the room. Amy's got two older sisters and one younger brother with the same parents as her. And she met them on that trip too. They were so excited to meet me and just, yeah, it was, it was this really intense period uh, and they were so lovely. And it was almost to a, a fault because I wanted them to start immediately treating me more like a family member where they were treating me like this esteemed guest and always wanted mm-hmm. to make sure I had everything and they were buying me all these gifts and, mm-hmm. you know, and I wanted to have a, a more intimate, lower maintenance kind of relationship with mm-hmm. them. And that just takes time. Amy eventually decided to take that time. I moved back to Korea for the first time in 2009 with my partner, Louis, who is not a Korean adoptee. He's Scottish. Mm -hmm. And we lived there from 2009 to 2011. Mm -hmm. And then I went and did my graduate work in the UK and then went back to Korea for another two and a half years. While Amy was in Korea, she taught, she studied, she hung out with her family and she got involved with organizations that did work with adoptees. So I volunteered with Kumfa, which this is an amazing program. It supports these unwed mothers and they would have adoptees come in and volunteer to watch unwed mothers' children who don't get enough child care and support so they could go and organize and do their work to advocate for themselves. So you babysat? I babysat. And that was a really surprisingly empowering space for adoptees. And when you saw how happy these children were to be with their natural mothers and to think one of them actually gave up her child and went back and demanded her child back. So it was a really close call. And to see these families together, it reminds you of why you're doing this work. Did you think yourself looking after these little toddlers and seeing them with their moms, was there any pang for you? Like this could have been me or how was that for you emotionally? Yes, taking care of these kids, it does hit home when you think about your own circumstances. And, you know, I get from so many people, you know, like your upbringing in the States was so positive, right? Your parents didn't abuse you. You still have a good relationship with them and you're successful. You know, you got this great college education and you have all these resources. And that's completely true. And I'm so grateful for that. But that never will extinguish the pain and trauma that my Korean mother went through. It will never negate that. It always will be part of that equation. And so I don't have to feel personal regret, but I do want to honor that sacrifice that was made in order for me to have all of these wonderful things and for my parents to have a child in the States. There was a loss and we need to look at that loss instead of just seeing adoption as a, as a gain for everyone. So remember our context queen from earlier, Maureen, who wrote about the Adam Crapser case? Well, she's an adoptive parent herself and she understands the challenges. My sons came to us as babies, but they are transracially adopted and they were both born in the United States. And then my twin daughters came from Ethiopia when they were six years old. The children growing up in transracial adoptive families can thrive and can do very well and are most often deeply loved. But that's not to say that they don't have to struggle with issues of loss and grief 
and identity. I think adoptive parents have to recognize those issues as well as the realities of racism in the United States and our increasingly anti-immigrant culture here as well. Of course, I had to ask Amy for her thoughts. So would you adopt a child of a different race yourself? I don't see myself adopting a child in general. What about an adult? What about me? (laughs) I will introduce you (laughs) as my Korean adopted grandchild. So back in Korea, did Amy manage to get that low maintenance relationship with her Korean family that she craved? I lived there for some time and we got a new apartment and they came over to see it. And my oldest sister and my stepfather were very hungover. Like really like, do you say stinking in in Ireland? Okay. Yeah. Because we say it in Scotland, right? He was just stinking. Stinking, Yeah. Yeah. So like really, really bad. And they came over and we ordered Chinese food. And my stepfather and sister, at some point, they were like, screw this, we're just going to take a nap on the floor. (laughs) And that moment was so important to me because it was like after so many early meetings and where they were treating me so preciously Mm -hmm. that we had reached a stage where they're like, F this, we're just going to go in and nap on your floor. We're not even going to say we're doing it. They like (laughs) just went in and closed the door. And I'm like, this is great. You know, this to me is a level of intimacy that I really am happy that we've we've gotten there. Amy moved back to the United States a couple of years ago to teach at the drama department in UC Santa Cruz. And she uses voice and acting training to help others navigate their identity too. So currently I'm doing workshops with adoptees, particularly adoptees of color who are predominantly in transracial families. She started teaching young, and I mean really young. My mom, I have to say, was really amazing and instrumental. Uh, As soon as the bullying started in elementary school, she marched into our principal's office and was like, we're going to have a day where she and I would come in, Mm -hmm. we would teach my classmates about what Korea was and what adoption was, and we'd make Korean food and teach them a little bit about the culture. And so I actually technically started to teach when I was in kindergarten because I was teaching my classmates. So about vocal training, I'm kind of allergic to the idea because I often get criticized for the way I speak. It's too hesitant. I say like too much. My accent is neither here nor there. But my voice, it's me. And Amy gets that. She knows that as women, especially, we get tons of hassle for the way we speak. And she's not in the business of changing us. Our voice is this essential part of our identity, whether it's our accent, our our intonation, our cadence. Uh, it, it has to do with our gender identity, our sexual identity, our race, our nationality. And when we try to police people's voices and make them feel wrong for sounding a certain way, mm-hmm. we are absolutely creating a, a space that is unwelcoming for a whole of the, of the person. I remember seeing you do stand-up for the first time, and I thought you had such a great command of your own cadence and your own vocal rhythm. And really? That you were, yes, absolutely. I think that is one of your strengths oh. as a performer. You so, know, I didn't know. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> I kept that a secret, and I was trying to keep it a secret for the rest of my life, and now it's out. <laughs> so happy Amy thinks I got a good way of talking.
I think the work we do is to help people become better listeners and to train other people to listen to an accent in a way that they can understand it better instead of the onus always being on that person to change their accent. But it's really it's really complicated. It is, right? And I think I I've only lived really in English speaking places, so I'm so like have that advantage that I grew up speaking English. But um, definitely people tell me that I have an accent, but it's like everyone has an accent. <laughs> we all have an you accent. Know? And I think um, all accents aren't equal either, right? Like I feel like mine probably gives me an advantage. People seem to like my Irish accent. Right. Whereas like- Because you bring them good luck. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's so much research that looks at the value of people's accents and speaking and how that hmm. intersects with capitalism and you know, someone's accent can be considered authoritative and someone's accent can be considered uneducated, hmm. right? And we have all this prejudice and, and judgment around these. And I talk to my students about accents being literally life and death. When you have witnesses to Trayvon Martin's shooting on the, the stand and the defense lawyers for George Zimmerman were actually using the... Um, criticism of African-American vernacular English to delegitimize a witness on a stand. So Amy's talking about Rachel Jantal, who was the key witness in the state's trial against Trayvon Martin's killer, whose lawyer repeatedly questioned her grasp of English and undermined her credibility by doing so. The thing is, though, Jantal's English was fine. It just wasn't standard. Linguistic bias may have influenced the outcome of that trial. Amy takes her responsibility as a teacher really seriously. And when black voices or, or voices of color are coming into my training space, I have an ethical responsibility. When the hashtag for Eric Garner is I can't breathe, and mm. I t literally teach people how to breathe mm -hmm. in more efficient ways to, to speak, right? There's, there's so much connection to what I am doing in that space to what's happening in the outside world. Mm-hmm. That's not what I bargained for when I was like, so you're an acting coach? <laughs> <laughs> I, unfortunately, there are a lot of acting coaches who are not thinking about this. So I part of my work is to, to speak more to that and to advocate for what is happening outside of the class that students come in with. They don't leave that at the door. Yeah. They can't afford to. Amy is so nuanced and thoughtful about her voice work, I almost didn't tell her that I was in an episode of Doc McStuffins. If you don't know that cartoon, its creator describes it as cheers, but for preschoolers. I played a giant Irish doll with body issues. Here's my character confiding in a lamb. Oh, all right, I'll tell you. I was just feeling so sad, Lammy, and I wanted to play with a lot of you, but then I'm just this big giant among all you wee toys, and I kept feeling like I was getting in the way, and I didn't like feeling like that, okay? Oh, you need a giant cuddle. How did you feel about them, Cass? Were you like, um... It was typecasting. <laughs> Okay, Amy, thank you for talking to me. Thank you, Maeve. It was a great pleasure really? and honor. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Maeve in America is a joint production of Pretty Good Friends and First Lift Media. This episode was produced by the indomitable Liz Coe and myself, Maeve Higgins, with help from Shayna Feinberg, Julie Smith-Clem, Erica Romero, Matt Schiltz, and Pat Macedi-Miller, who wrote our theme music. The show was engineered by Cameron Drews and Chris Keane with music from Sending Letters to the Sea. Shout out to Jermaine Hamilton at the wonderful Studio Circle in San Mateo. 
Huge thanks to Lethal Malad and all the honeys at First Look Media. Thanks also to Chris Nee and Doc McStuffins. Come visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Maven America, where you'll find tons of photos of and information about our contributors and guests. To find out more about Amy's work and her amazing workshops that are coming up, please check out her website, vocalcontext.com. Oh, don't forget to rate and review this show on iTunes. I do not know what that means, but it's apparently super important. Also, would you mind sending this show to someone who would not normally hear it? If you refuse, I will put an Irish curse on you. That's it. Thanks so much for listening. More to come next week. But it is kind of weird that you became part of a family that we all look so alike as well. Yeah, yeah. And then you got me. <laughs> <laughs> and then poor mommy gets to blame. What, when did she have that child? <laughs> <laughs> do, do they know? I can't, nobody said that. <laughs> <laughs> poor daddy.